Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. All you gardeners out there who haven't already strangled yourself with a garden hose or fallen upon your ori-hori knife, <laughs> this drought is taking its toll on us. <laughs> Let's at least have some fun on the radio, if not out in the garden. You know, fall is coming. I mean, it is. That, that, let, me, let me just give you a moment of hope here. <laughs> Believe it or not, there is actually a fall on the way. I, I don't know when, but I wish I could make up a time and, and give us a little bit of hope sooner rather than later. But it'll be here. It'll be here. And the temperatures will drop and things will come back to normal. And I realize right now, just keeping plants alive is a full-time job and not that much fun. But... Uh, if you can, it will reward you later on. In other words, uh, you know, replacing a shrub, replacing a tree, even replacing perennials comes at a cost. So we can just keep them alive. Uh, we will get through this and we'll be okay. The, uh, the other thing to remember right about now is we're in a time of year when there's a lot of things to be doing to get ready for fall and to prepare plants for fall plants for the upcoming season and uh, the winter season that is too. For example, out in the vegetable garden, uh, we are in the dog days of summer, toward the end of them hopefully, uh, about to end August. Boy, that'll be nice. Wouldn't it be nice if August was the last summer month? Uh, September is actually the last summer month in Bryan College Station uh, and, and May is the first one by the way. If we, <laughs> we find a way to survive through these months, uh, we'll be doing okay. The August time is when we get those warm season vegetables into the vegetable garden so that when things do cool off, which they will in the fall, they will start producing. So late September and October can be productive times in the vegetable garden, especially October. For example, uh, green beans, bush beans, pole beans, th those need to get planted so that when we do get into cooler weather, those plants are ripening. Now, I would put a little shade over the, the uh, planting row to keep the soil temperature a little cooler. Keeping it moist is essential, especially getting plants to um, establish well. When a seed germinates, uh, there are two things going on here at this time of the year. Number one, excessive soil temperatures uh, can, can really inhibit germination. And uh, that would mean that a little seed, for example, let's take green beans, which is what we're just talking about. Uh, that seed has to germinate and up at the soil surface. We'll go out and set your hand down on some bare soil right now and go feel what that's like. Well, that is not good seed germinating temperature. So by keeping it moist, we help it cool because it will evaporate. And so we have to keep keep sprinkling it occasionally to keep it moist. But as it evaporates, that is an evaporative cooling that does help at the seed level. Also, uh, if you put a little bit of a shade over the row, I don't mean, you know, like cover the whole thing with a thick blanket of leaves. Seedlings need light to germinate. But just something to keep the temperature a little cooler, and shade will do that, they will come up and establish a lot better. And when, when we say shade, I'm talking about like a 50% shade cloth, something to just break that intense solar heat a little bit uh, would be really helpful. Also, for all your summer seeding getting ready for fall, you want to make sure and first water the soil well. Give a good soaking. That pre 
plant watering is important, and here's why. It wets the soil deeply. If you give it a good soaking, it wets the soil deeply. I, I usually do that a couple of days before I'm going to plant, just to get that water soaked down in the soil. Then I plant my seed, and another good soaking will wet the seed and help it start to imbibe water and initiate that um, biochemical germination series of events that happens between a dry seed and a young seedling. And once that starts, uh, it's it's going. And, and so from that point on, you have to maintain moderate soil moisture. If a seedling dries out during that process, it'll die. It's got to get a root down deep in the soil so that it has some resilience. So pre-plant watering and then water with a little bit of shade covering, and you can get anything that we're talking about here for the fall growing. Uh, squash, for example summer squashes. You can plant those now. Uh, cucumbers, for example, is, an, is another uh, good example. It, it's getting a little late on the cucumbers, but you can still do it. You can still get cucumbers in the ground, uh, give them a little bit of, of water, and get them going so that in the fall you have a beautiful harvest. And a lot of these plants, the, the quality is higher in the fall when they ripen. For example, green beans. You plant green beans in the spring, and by the time they're up and growing, here we are probably uh, looking at harvest coming around about May. It can get a little hot then. And so the quality of your harvest is not as good when the weather's hot as it is when the weather's mild. So planting green beans now and then having a harvest in October is a super high quality. And I, I just, I think that it, it falls a good time. You don't want to miss out on that uh, for these crops. Uh, too late for winter squash, for sure, uh, because it takes so long. All the other summer vegetables that take a long time, it's a little too late for those. Uh, if you want to get in a summer green planting, you could still do that. But remember this, that just like in spring, we have this traffic jam in the vegetable garden in the fall. And so you've planted, let's say, green beans. Uh, maybe you have some tomatoes and cucumbers that are in the ground that are growing. Uh, pepper transplants, uh, some uh, eggplant even, and so that's taking up garden space. And by the time we get to about mid-September, it is high time to put out uh, the blue leaf vegetables, the cruciferous vegetables. We call those cold crops, not C-O-L-D, but C-O-L-E. And uh, that would be broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, uh, see Brussels sprouts, kohlrabi, collards, kale, you get the idea. Uh, and so if you've got your garden filled with warm season, you've got some trade-offs there to go. So just think about that and plan accordingly. But it is, it is final call for some good cool se or warm season vegetables to be planted for a fall harvest. So there's no reason to say, well, it's time for broccoli, I can't have squash. No, you can have them both. You just have to find the space to do it. So that's a little bit of a things you need to be doing right now. Late August is a great time to plant marigolds. Marigolds are a spider mite magnet. And I mean, they will they will turn a marigold to toast faster than they turn a tomato to toast. I mean, it, they really love our marigolds. And so when you plant them in late August, uh, as the day length gets shorter and the temperatures do begin to cool off, spider mite populations uh, start to crash. We don't have as much of a problem with them. And you can have pretty much mite-free marigolds in October, November, uh, carry you right up to whenever the first frost is. 
So think of them. We used to refer to them. AgriLife Extension had a little promotion on them as marimums because in fall everybody thinks about mums. Well, uh, African-type pom-pom-type marigold is really beautiful. They come in orange and yellow, and there's even a kind of a whitish version now. Uh, but anyway, they, they glow in the beautiful weather of fall and they go, do so mite free. So that would be something that we could plant right now out in the floral beds. You can also plant petunias out there. and Just a lot of things we think of as warm season, you could be planting them now to carry on into the fall season. One other thing are potatoes. This is the, not sweet potatoes, but uh, the what we would refer to as new potatoes or red potatoes, the white potatoes, not the russet baking type, but, but the the uh, thin-skinned red and white potatoes, those can be planted now. Now, normally we take a potato and we cut it so that there is an eye or two, or that is a bud or two on each piece, plant them in the ground. That's how we do it in the spring. If you plant fresh-cut potatoes, even if you let them heal over a little bit for a few days after cutting, you're going to have a lot of rot issues in the fall. So we've got a couple of options. Uh, one is to use small potatoes. I always save a few potatoes from the spring harvest into the until to uh, the fall time, so I can plant them and hold hold the small potatoes whole in the fall, and we don't have that rot issue. Another thing I've done is, and this is tedious, but it can be done. Farmer couldn't do it, but a gardener can. Uh, you just do the potato cutting, let them heal over, and then plant them in four-inch pots indoors in a little bit of a protected location where the temperature is not so blazing hot after they've had time for the cut pieces to heal over, and start them as transplants. Once you get the plants up and growing, it doesn't matter if the seed piece, the rest of it rots, you've got a plant, and you could then set your transplants out in the garden. Now, if you had an acre of potatoes, I wouldn't recommend that. But again, for a garden size, uh, that works just fine. So a couple of options. But uh, typically, we do that about the third week of August, so we can still do it, but get them done quickly, and you can have a wonderful harvest. About the time that frosts are killing those vines back, uh, you've got a really nice harvest of potatoes under the ground. Let's see, in the, in the um, landscape beds, uh, roses put on one heck of a good show in October. And I know right now your roses look like death warmed over, uh, or at least a lot of them do around town. Uh, I've gotten some um, pictures from folks out there uh, that uh, have sent me pictures of their roses, what they used to look like and what they look like now. And I think it's because misery loves company. So, oh my gosh, look at this. It, be sad with me. <laughs> Weep with me. Uh, but roses, you know, we can keep them alive. Just give them an adequate soaking and they'll be fine. Listen, it, Texas gardening is not for the faint of heart. Okay? <laughs> Let's just be honest with it. Uh, you know, if, if, if you want to move out to the West Coast, uh, you know, North Central California or something, I mean, you can grow anything. Anybody can garden out there. It doesn't take a horticulturist or a master gardener to garden out there. Uh, but it takes a true gardener to garden in, in Texas. But we just learn to deal with it. And plants are resilient, and we always can start over. That's one of the things I like about gardening. Now, I realize if you just lost, uh, you know, several hundred dollars worth of shrubs, this is no no. Um, not a helpful thing to hear, but uh, we get to start over on things. You know, if your if your veg if your lawn parts of it die, you can put some more sod down and be right back in business and keep going. Uh, if your vegetables or your annual flowers or things like that die, you just start over. 
gardening gardens are like etch-a-sketches. Do you even remember etch-a-sketches? You start to draw something, you got the two knobs up and down and sideways, and inevitably you turn the knob the wrong way and uh, you just ruined your picture. What do you do? You turn it upside down, you shake it, and you get to start all over. Well. That's why we have rototillers and spading forks and other things. You can't fail at gardening. You can only give up. I mean that. You can't fail. You can only give up. And don't give up. Just be willing to start over. We, it, there's no shame in doing that. In fact, I can't remember the guys. J.C. Ralston or some other famous southeastern horticulturist made the statement that, uh, uh, let's see, you got to be you got to kill a lot of plants to be a good horticulturist and i think that is absolutely true i know i have there've been times when if you could see my garden you would quit listening to garden success on the radio but that's okay the cobbler's kids go barefoot and we get by we just get to start over so be an eternal optimist which is what a gardener is because i promise you fall is coming winter's coming spring is coming and unfortunately next summer is coming too but every month of the year here in the Bryan College Station area, you can grow something. You, you can. And uh, so we just need to have foresight uh, rather than the misery of the moment. And I, I'm just being honest. I mean, it, it, it's tough. This is too dang. We got this little squirt of rain the other day. Some of you got almost none. Some of you got a decent rain. But we were working on our way toward another record of how many days over 100 degrees consecutive we had. I don't know how far we got to it, but I think we were close to like two or three on the record books. I believe it's 2011. We were still a ways away from that record drought. But you get the idea. It, we can do this. So have hope. If you will take your roses, I kind of got off of those a minute ago. By the way, it would help to give a phone number because this isn't a monologue show, so let's do that. <laughs> Please call and save your fellow listeners from my mantra. 979-845-5689. 979-845-5689. Or if you'd like to email me with photos, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, for roses, uh, they just need a good soaking on an infrequent basis to keep them alive and get them through this. They're going to be okay. Now is a time, if you can get them hydrated and where they have some, you know, some health in them, uh, do a shear back on your roses, uh, shrub roses. I'm not talking about the hybrid teas. That's a whole different system of pruning. But uh, for typical shrub roses, you know, everybody has a knockout rose, it seems like, these days. And lots of good old garden roses. Uh, you know, a place like Antique Rose Emporium just loaded with old garden roses that are tough. These are roses that grew. They found them in cemeteries in many cases. Uh, you know, a rose that can grow in a cemetery. Uh, well, as my, as my uh, friend and mentor, Dr. Bill Welch, says, if dead people can grow it, you can too. And I think that is a good way to put it. Uh, those are the kind of roses I need in my yard. I need a rose that can survive even without me. Uh, they are taking care of it. But if you give them a shearing back by, oh, I don't know, about a third, and then throw some fertilizer around the base and water it in really, really well. That's important, to water it in well. We're not talking about a ton of fertilizer. We're not talking about fertilizer on left just barely watered in in dry soil. Stress conditions. We're talking about a good soaking. Fertilize, another watering. They will take off and grow because fall is coming, and October is a big road show, rose show. 
So if you will do that now, you can have a beautiful October. And th this is why I'm talking to you in late August uh, to early September. We, we have to think forward when it comes to our gardening. And I mean, if you wait until it's so nice outside, you just want to run around out in the yard all day, it's a little late then to have done that rose sharing to get the good show. I mean, you'll be sharing a little bit too late. It's too late to plant tomatoes or to plant green beans or to do these other things that I'm talking about right now. Uh, but you can have one heck of a show if you'll take care of it. Give your plant. I know you. people try to water too often too little, and you need to not do that. You need to have a good soaking on an infrequent basis. And I'll talk about that a little bit more, especially related to trees in just a moment. Right now, we're going to go to the phones. Again, the number is 845-5689 and talk to Greg. Hello, Greg. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. You haven't I'm, you haven't hung yourself with a garden hose or anything, have you? <laughs> it's <laughs> it's been considered. Uh, the, uh, I guess my question is about a point of diminishing return. Unfortunately, we're saddled with water well that's even higher sodium than City of Bryan or College Station water. Oh wow! And I just don't know. I just don't know where a point of it's becoming without any kind of rainfall to flush away the buildup. Yep. Uh, I don't know if it's even how much we get out of watering. I guess there's something still to be said for watering. Yep. Or is it possible that the adding even more salty water just further kills things? Well, sodium doesn't do any good, that's for sure. Uh, if if you, What I would do is I would water to keep the plants alive. I mean, that's your only option. You know, unless you have a rainwater harvesting system where you hold a thousand of gallons of water that you can use sparingly on your plants for survival. Uh, then you just have to go with whatever water supply you have. I would say, though, that uh, maybe consider having a soil test done. If your sodium is super high, you can put something like gypsum out, and gypsum followed by some good deep flushings of water, even the sodic water, uh, will help knock that sodium off the soil particles and flush it out of the root zone, and that that's a recovery option. But yeah, we would we would rather not. I mean, I saw my water bill the other day, and oh my gosh, um, I, you know, I would rather not spend money for drinking water on my plants any month of the year. But right now, boy, we're we're putting a lot of it out there. But it it's kind of where you are. I mean, it's that or replant. Do you have a do you have any kind of update or knowledge of what the ppm on sodium is for Brian Conversation water? I don't. I don't know if if uh, Jennifer Nations is listening or not. She has access to those reports on the Brian Conversation Station district. I know, you know, there's there's uh, Welburn Water and the Wixon Valley and different systems around uh, that there's probably a little variation, maybe maybe not. Uh, Jennifer would know that. Uh, but she could tell us for sure on it. Uh, I just know you know, it's where we live. I, I worry less about people that are trying to keep their plants alive because with good soakings on an infrequent basis, you're not using as much water as people that squirt the ground every day and it just evaporates oh, away because they don't get good soakings. Uh, you use less to keep your plants alive the proper way to water. Uh, and, and so, but I worry more about the miswatering folks that are doing that year round. I mean, they're squirting their lawn long after we've been using a lot of water, they're still watering their lawn every other day. And and that does create issues for the lawn, not to mention the pocketbook. Well, and and I guess a little bit of science that if you water when there's a high evaporation rate, are you possibly compounding, like in the case of my, with sodium? I mean, if you 
the sodium doesn't go away, but the moisture, the H2O does. Yeah, that's true of any kind of, that's your sodiums and, and a lot of the, sodium and a lot of the other issues that we have with water quality, uh, that would be true. Yeah, I, uh, it's, it's just a matter of, you, you know, you do what you got to do. But I know when people, <laughs> when people do things right, you minimize that. For example, you prepare your soil well so you have a good, deep, extensive root system, not a little shallow root system on your grass or, or other issues. And, and it's, you're just able to go further along without having to water so much. And when you do water, you know, as we said, a good soaking, not a shallow one, uh, that's the best you can do. And then if we have to deal with the sodium later on, we have that option of, of gypsum that you know it's not easy to accomplish it's not an overnight fix but it is something that we can do if we have to but i find that most high sodium levels as i work with clientele around the the greater brian college station area most of it is caused by um, applicator error rather than just oh we had a dry summer so now we have a big sodium problem you know it's it, it's it's much right. more than just that yeah, I was. I, I knew you wouldn't have the magic wand. I just thought I'd throw that out there. That, yeah. I mean, because apparently, I mean, and, and I don't know. I'm not versed, but I know that certain trees and shrubs, some are more tolerant of sodium content than others. I yes. don't know that which yes. which necessarily, but uh, but I sometimes I just feel like I'm almost poisoning my trees while I while I'm trying to save them. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't don't quite think don't go as far as poisoning because it, it's not the case. But I'll tell you what you will notice. Drive around town. And notice plantings where they have sprinkler systems. And you can draw a line through the tree where the sprinkler water drifts up, where that mist from the sprinkler system drifts up. I was at the gardens on campus, beautiful place out there. And you yeah. can look at yeah. the trees and just see this line where the leaves are fried, and then above that they're green. So the roots are in the same soil, but the difference is getting that water on the foliage of the plant repeatedly and repeatedly. Now you've got sodium, you talk about just a little squirt and it dries on the leaf every day is some sodium and then it dries off and leaves the sodium behind and, and you just keep burning them with that kind of water and and that is also a problem but again that's miswatering okay yeah hey thank you thanks for the call thanks for for not uh, resorting to the you know stringing it up with a water hose i mean it falls no, coming no. hey I, hey just, we had Two summers in a row. What can you say? There you go. Welcome to Texas. We're tough. Nothing phases us. Uh, and <laughs> thanks for hanging in there. I'm just here trying to save lives today, Greg. Appreciate the call. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's funny. Uh, let's go back to the emails. Uh, uh, Robert uh, sent an email with an elm with some brown leaves. Uh, and we're talking about not some. The whole elm has turned brown. I had a, a similar uh, question come from Bobby. I couldn't tell whether that was a live oak or not. Uh, when a when a tree turns completely brown by this time of the year, it is often a, a bad sign, meaning it's not coming back. Uh, it's post oaks, for example, they typically when they brown out in the late summer, I don't want to you know what they say never say never. I don't want to say it's it is dead absolutely, but it there's a good chance it is. However, some trees do have the ability when it gets dry. In fact, most trees do. To, for the leaves to turn brown, it casts the leaves away as a survival mechanism to stay alive uh, because the leaves are the only part of the plant that's essentially using any significant amount of water uh, keeping them alive. And so it'll cast those leaves off and there may still be life in the plant to come back. So it, it kind of is a, 
it's not absolute. Uh, but if your print, if your tree is turned completely brown, uh, there is a chance that it won't come back. There is also a chance that it'll come back partly. That parts will be lost and parts will be saved when it does rain again, and uh, it'll be okay. And then there there is a chance that it's just it's a good tough plant, and it's going to come back. For example, cypress. You see ball cypress planted throughout the Bryan College Station area, a lot of them. And on, on some of the boulevards, the plantings where, you know, you have bricks as the mulch in between two, two lanes of traffic, uh, those cypress will typically, in most summers, by, by the time we get to August, they are turning brown, bronze, and they're dropping leaves, and they look like they're dying, but they're not. They will come back. They'll be just fine. There are other plants that can't bounce back like that. So it kind of depends. Uh, for those of you who've emailed me, I'm kind of answering a whole bunch of emails here with one question. Uh, but if, if you've got brown leaves, I would wait and see, unless this is just an older established tree like a post oak or something that has been declining, and uh, this is probably just the straw that, that got the camels back. If you can wait, by next March or April, it should be leafing out if it's alive. If not, go ahead and get it out of there because the longer a plant sits after dying, the more you start to get decay in the wood and the more it becomes a hazard. And, and you don't want to just leave it until it drops a limb on something. So not a real great black and white answer there, but at least some principles to think about. Um, in the meantime, I would still give them a little bit of a soaking uh, because maybe you can hang on to them. Even let's say it's a plant that's like the cypress that's dropping its leaves to survive. Well, a good soaking just to keep some adequate moisture in the root system uh, can help help with that plant because it, when it does come back, then it, it has a little bit better health uh, for doing that. Uh, Jesse sends in a picture of uh, Satsuma on in a pot that looks like about 10 gallons, I believe. And there's a little bit of a... Uh, kind of almost a sun burning on on parts of the of the fruit. Um, satsumas are are citrus that we can grow here in containers quite well. Uh, they they're among the hardier citrus. Like if if someone calls and says I want to plant some kind of citrus, what is the hardiest things I can plant that don't freeze in the winter? Well, uh, the um, satsuma is pretty hardy once it's established. If it's a young tree. Not as much, but once it's in the ground about three years, you can probably take it down, oh, maybe to even to the low 20s if everything's right. Now, if it if it's warm for weeks and weeks and weeks and suddenly we drop down to the low 20s, no plants ready for that. But if if you have a little bit of a of a um, um, gradual cooling off period, the plant is able to harden off and do just fine. Uh, kumquats, probably the hardiest of the citrus. Those are the little things the size of the end of your thumb. Uh, they are even hardier than that, going down into the teens. So I like Satsumas for here because they are pretty hardy. Uh, and we can also grow them in a large container. But when I say a large container, I would give it the equivalent of a half whiskey barrel. Don't use a wooden whiskey barrel because that rots out fast. And you're, then you've got a, a problem on your hands trying to transplant that much into another plant planter that size just give them about that much soil if you would and I and Jesse I would I would move that up to a larger pot you don't need to do that now 
but let's get it through this period of time and then maybe in spring as it warms up and the dangers of freezes are past, go ahead and pot it up for the next season into something larger than that. Uh, and I think it would do just fine. The problem with putting any plant in a container is you've limited the entire root system of that plant unless it's just a large container for that plant species. So when you limit the root system, it means that every drop of water and every uh, you know, molecule of nutrient that is going into the plant has to come out of that volume of soil that you've given it. So if you were sitting there with an IV, the equivalent of an IV drip of the perfect nutrient blend, watering it two or three times a day in a, in a little container, yeah, you can grow a big plant in a small container, but that is not very resilient at all. And so we try to get our plants in containers large enough where there's a volume of soil that's adequate enough so that you don't have to water it twice a day or even every day in many cases uh, to keep it alive. I've got some plants that are in uh, pretty large containers, probably, again, using the whiskey barrel example, something about two-thirds that size, uh, that, are, that are doing pretty good. And uh, I don't water them every day. I just don't. Uh, and, but occasionally I forget enough to where they go into stress and have to have to save them. So just think about that when you're planting things. I always watch gardening shows on TV, and if they're from the East Coast, West Coast, typically you see plants, and, and I look at them and I go, that is not a big enough container to grow that in Texas here. It's just not. Or it's not just how hot does it get in the summertime. There's places where it may get up to 100 degrees. But 100 degrees for 100 days and d not going below 80 degrees at night for, for a long time, that is an intense stress on plants. And so we just need more pot size. That is important. And then a good quality mix to go in the pot that drains well but also holds water well. Drains the excess so it's not waterlogged but holds as much water as possible in the meantime along with some good air in the soil, good oxygenation and that would be the keys to success. Let's go back to the phones, the number 845-5689, and we're going to talk to Jesse. Hello, Jesse. Hey, yeah, thank you for the answer to that question. I actually have it in a little bit larger pot than 40, but uh, I'll, I'll get it bigger. But you said something earlier about water on leaves making them get burned. Uh -huh. um, I, I've, I have like a, a, a laurel tree that's got the lower end of it, the lower side of it. The lower leaves are turning brown. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed in my neighborhood that there's a lot of trees that have the lower branches are all turning brown, but the yep. top half of the tree is nice and green. Yep. Is that from irrigation water causing burning? Could be. It could be. A lot of our irrigation systems for the lawn, uh, we have super high pressure in this area for water pressure. I've never seen, seen pressure so high in other places I've lived. And so as a result, you're, you're putting too much pressure for the sprinkler head, and you end up with this mist that rises up. Go out in the morning when the water's on and just look, and you'll just see this. There's the droplets going out, but you just see this mist rising up. And it, it hits a certain level, and you can just draw a line through plants and, and see that. Uh, that is what I would attribute it to, because there's no way to explain why would lower leaves be brown, but the other leaves are not brown on the tree. Okay, thank thank you. That's a, I never not thought of that explanation, and I was trying to figure it out, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Skip. Sure, you bet. All right, no. thank you for the call, Jesse. Appreciate that very much. Uh, by the way, out and about around the area, uh, some groups will send me their emails. If you have a plant-related group that has uh, events coming up, I 
welcome you to send uh, garden success dot or excuse me garden success at tamu.edu send me an email and I'll I'll try to promote things going on with your with your group uh, you know we're not going to do the latest garage sale and the um, I don't know Boy Scouts candy sales for Christmas I, whatever kind of things like that but uh, the Rio Brazos Audubon Society and I count I count birds as part of gardening because that's one of our aspects of gardening. Uh, the Rio Brazos Audubon Society is inviting the public to their September meeting, and that will be Wednesday, September 13th, a couple weeks from now. Uh, Wednesday, September 13th at 6.30 p.m. at the Brazos Valley Museum of Natural History. That's at 3232 Briarcrest Drive and Bryant. And the speaker will be Dr. Sam Fullendorf. I hope I pronounced that right, Fullendorf. Uh, speaking on birds, bison and fire, the challenging future of conservation. They'll have refreshments. There's no charge for that meeting. By the way, the Audubon Society always has their monthly birding 101 walk out at the Lick Creek Park, which is, eh, if you head out Rock Prairie Road to the east of Highway 6, drive far enough out there, you'll get to Lick Creek Park on the right-hand side. The Birding 101 walk is on Saturdays. The next one is September 2nd, which is just around the corner this Saturday. And uh, new birders can go out there and sharpen their birding skills. Walking through, uh, they'll help teach you. The members are happy to teach you about identifying birds by sight and by sound. If you have binoculars, bring them. If not, there's a few extra pair. Maybe they can share with you. You want to meet out at the Lick Creek Park Visitor Center at 8.30 a.m. 8.30 a.m. and bring water for hydration. It will be hot. We pretty much know that, right? I can't wait till we don't know that it will be hot and cools off a little bit. A couple of activities going on here in the Bryan College Station area. Uh, going back uh, to the emails, uh, let's see. Scott has a, a piece, or a friend, has a piece lily that's outside that uh, they say have wasps on it. And they think there's a wasp nest in there. And how do you kill the wasp nest without killing you know, without burning the plant. And by the way, those wasp sprays that you squirt up in the eaves of your corner of your, you know, porch or whatever, and to kill a wasp nest, that is a product that will fry a plant leaf. Uh, pretty much like spraying gasoline on a plant leaf. So uh, you don't want to use those. Now, the fact that the, the statement said there are wasps on the plant makes me think there may not be a wasp nest in the plant. That is not to say they couldn't do that. They will do that, but that is not the most likely. Uh, wasps are out hunting right now. And uh, first of all, any plants that might have caterpillars on them or potentially have caterpillars, the wasps are your roving caterpillar control for those plants. Now, if you have a, a butterfly garden, that would not be a good thing. But if you have a uh, typical plant that caterpillars are eating the leaves, that's what wasps are out there doing. They're They're hunting. That's their main source of food is caterpillars. Uh, so this is the paper wasp that I'm talking about. Also plants have things called extra floral nectaries. Isn't that an interesting term? What does that mean? It means, well, nectar doesn't just come from flowers. There are plants that will have little locations on the plant where a little bit of nectar can, can ooze out of the plant. And you see this on black-eyed peas a lot. Uh, I've seen extra floral nectaries, uh, for example, at the base of peach leaves. You, there's little bumps at the very base, right before it goes into the petiole that attaches to the peach branch. Uh, and those are, are extra floral nectaries. Uh, plums have that too. A lot of plants do. I can name a few, but 
that's not the point. A lot of plants have those. And wasps and ants will go to those, and uh, ants that are interested in a sugary substance, and they will go to those, and they will they will feed there. And you'll just see them on the plant, and they're, they're there, but there's, it's not like there's a caterpillar there. They're just there feeding. And so I would not assume there is a wasp nest in that peace lily. This is an outdoor peace lily, also called Spathophyllum. It's one of the plants we put inside in very dark areas because it's one of the more uh, low-light house plants that we have. I think if it were mine, what I would do, you don't want to go up there and shake the plant. You'd find out if they're a wasp or not, but that's not a good way to find out. I'd get a water hose and one of those little hose guns on the end of the hose, and I'd stand back a good distance, put a long stream of water, and I would just blast that plant. And if there's a wasp nest in there, you're going to see a lot of wasps come out of that thing. That tells you what you got. Okay, now we got something different. I'll bet there's not. But if there is, uh, there are not a lot of great ways to deal with this. First of all, I just have to offer this uh, advice before making any further comments, and that is that if you are allergic to wasps, or maybe, that is life and death, and you don't want to mess with them, and anything I'm about to suggest, don't do it, uh, because this isn't, this isn't just like, ow, oh, that hurts. This is like a serious health issue when you're allergic to the venom of wasps. Uh, so I would, um, what I would do, and mine, I've done this before, is I've had a shop vac with a long PVC tube and just duct tape it to the end of the shop vac so you can hold the tube and it, you know, those PVC pipes, what are they, 8, 10 feet long? Uh, you can reach out there and when you see where the nest is, you can go right straight in toward it and before, maybe a wasp or two might fly out, but in general, when you hit that nest, it'll, it'll pull the whole thing into the um, uh, tube and into the shop vac. And uh, I've taken them out of the eaves of my house that way many times before. You just want to leave that thing running so they don't come flying out. Once you get them in there, that is a long, dark tube. And the wasps don't just know how to fly out of that shop vac. And if you leave them in there a while, they'll desiccate and die. Uh, don't open the shop vac right after you do that. You might have some upset wasps on your hands. But I've done that before to get wasp nests out where I need to get them, and I didn't want to squirt. Maybe you've—here's uh, where I've done it. Maybe you've got some plants underneath a wasp nest that's up on the eaves, and you don't want to squirt that stuff because wherever it drips, it's going to burn the leaves of your plants. Well, that's just another little trick I've done. But again, got to warn you, uh, if you don't want to get stung at all—I've never been stung doing it, but it's possible— uh, and if you're allergic, don't do it that way. Just don't do it that way. There's there's much greater things at stake for you there, so don't don't mess with that. But for those of you who want a little tip, that sure works for me. It's what I do all the time with them. Uh, see what other emails have we had come in here? Uh, uh, Colleen had emailed about mealybugs on Texas sage and and how to control them. Uh, this she made the point that, correctly that the systemics. Uh, something like imidacloprid, which is a, a very effective systemic insecticide, uh, it can hurt hurt bees. And uh, there's always a concern, you know, they have found that kind of product in the nectar of some plants. And I know that when we're looking at summertime, anything that has a flower in summertime, there are bees that are all over it. Uh, honeybees, uh, I've mentioned this on the air before, uh, but studies done here by our entomology folks, I have found that the number one pollen coming back to honeybee hives in the summertime in the city uh, is crepe myrtle pollen. Well, crepe myrtle has bark scale. Synth uh, systemic insecticides are pretty effective against bark scale, or at least that's one of the 
better options for efficacy. But if you've got that going into the one place that these bees are going in for nourishment in this blasted hot weather where there's not a lot of things blooming for them, well, that's, a, that's not a good combination. And so we try to stay, stay away from that. So anyway, back to Colleen's mealybugs on Texas sage. I would, I would do a couple of things. First of all, mealybugs are hard to control. They just are. Uh, they, they're little tiny immatures that are in there, kind of in the nooks and crannies where you got the branches and the leaves attaching and the buds and all that. And, and it just, you know, you spray them with a, a horticultural oil or an insecticidal soap. Uh, and it might be effective, but it doesn't get to all of them. And by the way, oils and soaps, when the temperature's up in the 90s and above, which it's been that for a while, hadn't it? Uh, that can burn plant tissue. So you want to use those kinds of things very, very, very early in the day where they have a chance to kind of dry a little bit before the blasting uh, hot sun comes out. Uh, what I would do is I would take a strong stream of water and I would just blast off everything I could. I don't know, maybe put on a bathing suit and enjoy being out there and squirt it in the air and get wet and then cool off and have fun. But basically blast off all the mealybugs you can. Uh, I've grabbed branches before and just held the branch so I could just blast those little things off. That is not going to get rid of all of them, but it'll knock a lot of them off the plant and get you a little bit ahead of time. And then if you follow that with some, like a soap spray, directly applied in there, you get, if there's immature mealybugs, they're going to be they're not going to have quite the protective coating that a mature mealybug would have on it. And soap's going to be a little more effective against them. The same with oils. Uh, you could squirt an insecticide that is a very temporary, like a pyrethrin, for example, would be something that would uh, would be efficacious against insects, but it doesn't last in the environment. It breaks down. And when you squirt that in right where the mealybugs are, you're not putting it on the flower itself. And Texas sage, it cycles in its bloom. So you, it's not like there's a bloom on it all summer, like, like with a crepe myrtle, for example. And so when you're not in a bloom cycle, that'd be a time to go in and do that kind of work. Uh, once we get past their bloom time, get toward the cool season, then maybe a systemic would be an option for those kind of plants. Uh, because by the time we got back around the next summer and it's blooming again, a uh, considerable amount of time has passed. So those are just a couple of thoughts on dealing with them. Mealybugs are one of those plants that uh, plants pests that are difficult to control. In fact, my general recommendation, if you have mealybugs on a house plant, is throw the thing away and get you a new one. I mean, that, to be honest, that cuts to the chase. You know, there are ways of managing them, but I see a lot of people just on a mealybug fighting treadmill uh, trying, to, trying to get ahead of them, and it's not, not easy to do. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689. And we were just talking about Jennifer a little bit. I'm going to go to the phone now, and we're going to talk to Jennifer Nations. Hey, Jennifer, did you happen to hear Hello. what I was asking about a while ago? Uh, no, I, I just tuned in when you were talking about the, uh, the wasps. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, someone asked about what is the part per million levels... <laughs> I hate to throw this to you when you call unexpectedly. Uh, you can probably refer them to a website here, but uh, what yeah. are the part per million levels of sodium typically in water in, you know, local water systems? Uh, we've just been talking about watering so much to keep plants alive, and we're seeing some burn on, on, yeah. on the foliage. And someone was just curious about how much, how do you quantify the amount of sodium we have here? Well, 
do have that in our uh, drinking water quality report. Um, everything that we sample for um, that's uh, regulated and detected, that's all listed in our drinking water quality report. And you can just go to cstx.gov forward slash water report, all one word, and it's all there. Okay, say that one more time, please. Yeah, it's www.cstx.gov, so collegestationtexas.gov forward slash water report. Okay. Okay. Water report. Well, that's good. Well, I have a feeling then if you didn't call for that, I'm about to hear the word stage one, but let's let's hear what you called yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, no, that it was it was bad. I just wanted to, you know, give the give the reminder that um, effective August twenty second, um, College Station went into stage one and I've had a couple of complaints about like, well, you should just have let us have more water, but this is unprecedented drought and the water that we're using for our plants, you know, the water system is for public health and sanitation and, and fire protection. Yeah. The side benefit is that we use it on our uh, landscapes, but um, yeah. this is it's a good, good time of year to look at what does not survive drought in your landscape and then don't replant it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good yeah. point. Well, and I don't know how you stayed out of stage one this long. Uh, this has been brutal. Yeah. It's, it's been brutal, and we just, you know, we, we thought that we could maybe keep going, but then we just, you know, it, and I can tell that people, not everyone is, is following schedule, but, you know, we've never done this before, um, and, and I don't think that it hasn't really been covered in the media that much, so I figured I would just give a little PSA that, yeah, we have a two-day-per-week watering schedule, which I've been pushing all summer anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you just pick your days. Now the city picks Yeah. Well, uh, I appreciate that, and and uh, as you know, we we have a lot of people that miss water, and uh, you know, if you love to waste money, cause plant disease, and not accomplish much, well, squirt the ground every day, and and good luck with that. Uh, but if you really yeah. want healthy plants, save. I got my water bill, and I happen to know that our water bills are tied to our. I mean, our sewer bills are tied to our water bills, right? Right. Yeah, up to ten thousand gallons. Any any use over ten thousand gallons, we're not charging super on that. Okay. All right. Well, it just it doesn't make sense to waste money. It doesn't make sense to promote disease, and it certainly doesn't make sense to waste right. water. Because as you point out, when when your house or the neighbor's house catches on fire, uh, we got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your green your green lawn isn't going to help there. So yeah, I just thought I would give people that that PSA, and it's the. The website, the watering schedule is on our website, cstx.gov slash water. Um, and then, of course, Wellburn and Whitson are um, both in their stage, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as I know, Brian is not in any, under any kind of restrictions. But I'm sure that they would do jumpy claps if um, their water demand went down as well. Absolutely. I'm, yeah, that is, a, that is an issue. So... Um, when when it comes to let's just go kind of nerdy here because I, I bet people have this kind of question, what does stage one mean or what does stage two mean and and so on when yeah. it comes to restrictions? So I had a really great call with some other water utilities yesterday. We're you know we're all revising our drought plans. They're they're going to be due. The revised drought plan is going to be due to the state next May, and so water utilities all across Texas are in drought, and we're really looking at our plans right now. We're reviewing what those stages mean. Basically, for us, our stage one in this plan means 
we have a water shortage and we need everybody to cut back on watering and it is mandatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then stage two is, oh, it's worse um, and we need you to cut back more. And then stage three, the current plan that we have at stage three is like um, really, really bad um, alert level, you know, no watering, no, it's very bad. So um, we've never had to do any kind of mandatory restrictions before. And um, I think going forward, I'll put four stages into our plan next year so that we have a little bit more flexibility. But essentially, it's it's a drought emergency management tool for utilities. Okay. It's, it's something. It's a tool to help the utility maintain water pressure and maintain water flow under extreme high demand conditions. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's good. There. Well, you know, I've That's owned. I've only lived in an area that had stage three one time, and that was when I was in Austin, Texas. And uh, that's that's serious stuff then, when you hit that stage. Yeah. Not, you, don't, you don't want to stay in stage three for more than, like, a few days. But if you're, you know, San Antonio is in stage two, I think, and they're, I think they might be knocking on the door of stage three. Wow. So, okay. Well, yeah. I, I have a better idea. Let's figure out whatever the magic rain dance is, and we're just going to require all residents to go outside and start doing it right now uh, and put an end to this nonsense. I thought for sure there was a hurricane that hit South, what, didn't it hit South Texas last week, um, the coastal land area, and I thought for sure, okay, we go into stage one, that hurricane's going to go off track and come right into Houston. I thought, I thought for sure that would do it. Nope. Well, it didn't work, huh? Uh, no, so, work, no. yeah, so rain dances don't work. Uh, praying for hurricanes is not very effective right now, it seems. And uh, I don't know. I've tried leaving the windows on the car down, too, and that doesn't make it rain. That usually kind of makes it rain yeah. for me. But <laughs> all right, yeah. Jennifer, thank you so much for calling You're me welcome. on. Any kind of any kind of updates like this, please do call back uh, because our folks okay. need to know. Thanks very much. All right. Bye. Bye bye. You take care. Had an email come in from uh, Austin Kelly, and the uh, A&M plant identification team meets every Tuesday and Thursday. Now, this is at 6 p.m. on campus at the Horticulture Building. It's actually the Horticulture Forestry Science Building on the first floor, room 124. Horticulture Forest Science Building, 124, which... uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 6 p.m. Now, what they are is they're a competitive collegiate A&M undergrad team, and their practice sessions are open to the public, believe it or not. And if you want to learn more about how to identify wild plants, particularly those plants that are important to rangelands or to wildlife habitat, you are welcome to sit in and do a little bit of learning with them. Sounds like a kind of a fun thing. Uh, So anyone that's interested, just give Austin Kelly a... uh, call. He's given a phone number here. 254-477-3213. I'm going to give those of you scrambling for a pen and paper, which you always should have on hand when you listen to the radio. Anyway, I'm going to give you a minute to grab one, and I'll give you that number again. But again, this is the Texas A&M Plant Identification Team. Uh, They're having their open meetings, and the number is 254-477- 3213 if you would like to be part of their Tuesday and thir- or and or Thursday uh, meeting 6 p.m. at the Horticulture Forest Science Building room 124. But call them, call Austin, find out more about this before you head that way. 
Yeah, sorry to interrupt, Skip. I just yes. got off the phone with a listener who wanted to let you know that he was driving through Georgetown within the last couple of days, and they had those big um, construction-type signs that yeah? said that there was no outdoor watering to be had oh, really? in Georgetown, in Texas. Georgetown. Wow. No outdoor – gee. All right, folks. Well, let's – we all need to be doing our part in not miswatering our plants. Uh, water properly, follow the – Follow the guidelines that your water supply system has put out there uh, because we can get through this. We can. I mean, it it's going to rain again. We just, you know, are keeping our plants alive. We're not, uh, you know, it, it, it's simple. It, it's just can you keep them alive? Just rescue treatments. We're not trying to have them live the life of Riley and grow luxuriously. In fact, we would like them to not be growing luxuriously right now. Just keep them alive. Now, one one thing I want to point out, and I'm going to come back to another email right quick here. One thing I want to point out is that, like with your trees, your trees don't need to be watered every other day. They, they just don't. If you can take the area underneath the branch spread of the tree, think of it, we call it the drip line. So picture this tree as a giant umbrella. And if it rained, <laughs> remember that? If it rained, where would the water be dripping off the umbrella? That's called the drip line of the tree, if the tree were an umbrella. And from there all the way into toward the trunk, especially the outer two-thirds of that, uh, water that area. Apply at least an inch of water when you do to thoroughly soak the ground. You probably cannot put an inch on without it running off. So you're going to have to water for a while, let it sit for about 45 minutes, and then water that area again. Maybe it means dragging a hose and making two laps around the tree just so you get that double soaking to get it deep. And then don't water for at least 10 days, if not two weeks. Uh, we're just trying to keep the plants adequately hydrated, keep them out of major, major stress or, or, or dieback. Uh, and that's all it's going to take. Uh, that's all it takes. You don't have to water everything. Turning your sprinkler system on and watering the entire yard, uh, if you're just trying to keep a tree you know, alive, that, that's not necessary. Let's water that. Focus the watering on that area when you do. I think that would be helpful. I want to run uh, to the emails right quick. We're about out of time today. Uh, but the first, uh, we had a couple, couple of things from Susan. Uh, the, the first one was, is there a good application in the garden for rubber mulch? Well, anything on the ground that is protecting the soil surface is going to be technically called a mulch. You could have pea gravel as a mulch. You could have, you know, uh, certainly good organic mulches. I don't like rubber mulches because they don't break down. Now, some people may like that, but if you have to get in there and mix up the soil or something, you end up burying the mulch, and now basically you just got... You just got trash in the ground, and that doesn't do the soil any good. It doesn't decompose. It doesn't help soil organic matter content. Uh, it doesn't. Anyway, I, I don't like them. Uh, so, but if you had an area that you just put it on the surface for that one purpose, well, it would serve as a mulch, but all the other good benefits of mulch would not be there. And as a result, I, I don't recommend those. The next question is uh, with the long stems of a bougainvillea, and uh, they're you know if they got lo lots of leaves and no flowers, can you trim them to have them make flowers again in the fall? I'm gonna say I don't know to that. I I've not had that situation myself with a bougainvillea, where I did trimming to. I, I anytime you trim a plant, you're gonna get new buds that break and grow, and often more than one branch where you where you cut one shoot off, you may have two or three or, or more shoots, depending on the species, 
that sprout out and replace it. So potentially there's more terminals, which means more flowers. So I could see in principle how that could be helpful. Uh, I wouldn't want to do much pruning on a plant that was under stress right now, for sure, because it just doesn't have the vigor to be able to support that. Uh, but uh, that may be a strategy. I don't know. We don't have time today for someone who's a Bougainville expert to call in and answer it officially. Uh, but I would say, I don't know, let's leave it this way, uh, Susan. Let, if you want to try it on a branch or two just to see how it does, uh, then let me know how it worked for you. Uh, the fact that it has leaves uh, tells me it must be in pretty happy health, uh, so you may give it a try. Can you get another cycle of growth and bud set and bloom before the end of fall? I don't know. I, I, I'm a little iffy on whether that would, would have the case. I know with roses you can. I just don't know on a bougainvillea if that is going to be the case or not. But I appreciate that question. Wow, today seemed to go fast. Maybe it's because I was talking to myself all day on this, uh, all these kind of crazy things. You're listening to Garden Success. Tell your friends, families about it. It is easy to listen in on every Thursday from 12 to 1. If you want to listen to us by podcast, we are on podcast apps. Just look for Garden success and you can catch up with past shows uh, a lot of folks email and i just am not able to type out email replies in the short time i have here at the station to do that uh, so uh, i try to send you something going hey i'm going to answer today or hey i answered today uh, go back and listen to the past shows uh, you can go to the kamufm website to the garden success page and we post the past shows on there for you to listen to. But thanks for listening. We appreciate that. In the meantime, uh, if we can help you at the AgriLife Extension Office, we have it in Brazos County here. That's where I work. We have ag extension offices all over the state. All 254 counties of Texas served by Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service. And that is your link to all the specialists at Texas A&M on all aspects of things gardening, agriculture, youth, family and community health. It's a great resource. Take advantage of it. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.